Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Phil Rowley, and he'll be answering your questions on still trout fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Phil a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We do have a couple of links on our homepage, and uh, you can uh, take you right out there to leave a note. Also, I wanted to let you know about a new social media app that I and many of the guests I've had on Ask About Fly Fishing are using for conversations on fly fishing. It's called Clubhouse. We've started a club called the Fly Fishing Club, and in that club, we're hosting a room called Fly Fishing Q&A every Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Clubhouse is like a conference call where people can talk with each other live, and I've invited some of the top fly fishers that have been on my shows to join the conversations. If you're a member of Clubhouse, follow me on Clubhouse, and you'll be notified when I open the rooms. If you're not a member, and then you need to join, you need to have an invitation. So send me an email at roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. Again, roger at askaboutflyfishing.com, and I'll help you get an invitation. Again, I'll be hosting the Fly Fishing Q&A on Clubhouse every Thursday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Hope to see you there. The content of this broadcast is being copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Phil Rowley about stillwater trout fishing. Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit Lee's Ferry Anglers or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800 962 9755. Before we introduce Phil, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Now, you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Phil's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. 
We'll also be giving away a copy of Phil's latest book, Hot Off the Presses. It's called The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, courtesy of Lions Press. To learn more about the books that Lions Press offers, you can go to lionspress.com. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions we ask at the end of the show. The questions will be about something that Phil and I talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name and your location on the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills and see if you don't win Phil's Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing. It's the same box, by the way, that you use to ask questions during the show there on the homepage. Just use that same box when you do answer the questions. Our guest tonight is Phil Rowley. Phil has been fly fishing for over 35 years. His love of fly fishing has taken him across North and South America, pursuing trout, Atlantic and Pacific, salmon, char, pike, walleye, and numerous other species on the fly. Phil is probably best known for his still water exploits. A former commercial fly tire, Phil has written for almost every major fly fishing publication in North America. He has authored four books, including his recently released Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing along with numerous feature articles, and has been fly-tying columnist for BC Outdoors magazine for over 10 years. Phil's first book, Fly Patterns for Still Waters, is a bestseller, and in 2014, Phil was the proud recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from Fly Tire magazine, and the 2017, the Gene Guy Coat Award for his contribution to Canadian fly-tying. In addition to his writing, Phil has Five instructional DVDs. In 2008, he, along with good friend Brian Chan, released Stillwater Fly Fishing App. The app is a unique handheld resource containing hundreds of how-to videos dedicated to the challenges of fly fishing lakes. Recently, Phil and angling friend Jordan Ulrich began providing online learning through Stillwater Academy. Phil is also a competitive fly fisher. He was a member of the gold medal winning team at 2017 Canadian Fly Fishing Championships. When he isn't on the water, Phil travels North America performing at outdoor shows, providing seminars, speaking to clubs, conducting fly fishing shows, and tying clinics. Phil also provides instructional stillwater guiding on the lakes located a short distance from his Edmonton area home. Phil has appeared on several TV shows, including BC Outdoors, Sports Fly Fishing, Sports Fishing Adventures, The New Fly Fisher, Sport Fishing BC, and Fishing Alberta, Let's Go Outdoors, and Fishing with Shelley and Courtney. Phil, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks. It's great to be back. Well, that was quite the intro, quite Sorry. the accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you get for doing so much. I mean, yeah, we've yeah, got to tell a, the world about it. I have a problem. I can't say no. <laughs> you can't say no. Yeah, right. That does become a problem. Yeah, we've had you on the show a couple times before. We did a show called Fly Fishing Stillwaters with Coronamids and advanced coronamid techniques. So folks, after tonight, you want to hear more from Phil, I suggest you go to our archive and check out those two other shows by Phil. And you'll have one, two, three, three and a half, four hours worth of Phil rallies. Well, I don't know <laughs> so if that's a good that? thing. <laughs> my, my kids don't yeah, seem to like yeah. that. <laughs> they don't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what my kids used to say. They'd say, can you just bank us or something? I, you know, I can't stand the lectures. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I know how that is. Well, anyway, let's talk about stillwater fishing. Sure. And got a lot of good questions came in tonight, so we'll get through them as best we can. And, again, we talked about your book just a few minutes ago, but I suggest everybody take a look at that. It's really very complete in so many ways. We're going to dip our toe in tonight, but if you want the 
the whole shebang, get Phil's book and uh, check it out. But one of the chapters in the book that, that you have was how lakes work. So in my mind, after interviewing a lot of different people on still waters and fishing them myself and talking to other people, and the questions that come up seem to be the same questions all the time. They all kind of stem in my mind to how lakes work because if you don't understand what's going on under the water, then it's real hard to be successful in my mind. So I know you think that same way. Can you kind of give us a rundown on what we need to know about how lakes work? Yeah, that whole chapter is based upon just understanding, in scientific terms, limnology. And it's important to understand lakes are large and vast, and there's a lot of water and a lot of places for fish to be. And by understanding how they work on a seasonal basis, it helps you predict where they are and where they aren't going to be, so you spend your time in the best locations. And just like here on the dry land, lakes go through seasons. And they, if we start in late fall, just before the ice goes on, the temperatures in the shallows eventually get really cold, and the fish start sliding out of the shallow water into the deeper water where they're going to spend the majority of the winter. And we're talking about most of the shallow productive lakes that uh, people target for when they're still water trout fishing. So then that ice goes on the lake, and it's all good. Sunlight's still coming through, penetrating, stimulating weed growth through photosynthesis. But uh, over time, those lakes are going to get snow on the ice, which blocks light. And then all of a sudden, your plants aren't surviving anymore. They're not living through photosynthesis, so they start to die off. And when they die off, they decompose, and, and the two products of decomposition are consumption of oxygen and generation of heat. So what you end up doing is the coldest water is up near the surface where the ice is, and the lake starts to stratify into two distinct layers. And the fish will be in that upper layer because that's where the oxygen is. So they'll start in that deeper water, and then eventually as that decomposition takes place and the lake stratifies, they'll start getting pushed shallower and shallower or up closer to the ice. And that's where they'll spend the latter part of the winter. And in really severe conditions, very productive lakes with lots of weed growth, what can happen is all of that oxygen gets consumed and fish can die. It's called winter kill. So that occurs when the ice is on the lake. Hopefully the lakes get through because those productive lakes are the ones that tend to have the largest fish because they have all that weed provides excellent habitat for food. So in the spring, the ice comes off the lake, and that lake is still stratified. Usually for you know, a period of a week or so, right after ice off, you can have some really outstanding shallow water fishing because the fish are trapped in the shallows because, again, that's where the oxygen is. And a lot of times in the northern hemisphere, we're targeting shallow, muddy bays, northern bays, because the way the angle of the sun works, they get uh, the light first, and that those dark, muddy bottoms warm and that can stimulate a little bit of activity because we're talking water temperatures soon after ice off or just literally above freezing 32 Fahrenheit. Those fish will be trapped in the shallows until that upper layer that's cool starts to warm and becomes the same temperature as the rest of the lake below and becomes isothermal, which basically means it's the same temperature and stimulated by wind, water will mix. One of the properties of water is it doesn't like to mix when it's not the same temperature. But when it is the same temperature, it'll mix, and the lake turns over. And what's happening is as that lake mixes, that anoxic, low-oxygenated water gets rolled over and turned over up to the surface where it diffuses with the atmospheric air and gets recharged. It's an important ecological event on a lake because it basically re-oxygenates it. Once that turnover has taken place, the fish can then, the water's pretty well well-oxygenated throughout, 
and the fish are free to distribute themselves all over the place. So this is the time of the year that hatches take place and uh, really gets going. We use one of the gauges I look for is water temperature and one of the key water temperatures for still waters is 50 Fahrenheit that we use as a guide. That's a temperature that's, you know, over my experience has been when once that water temperature reaches about 50, that's when your emergences start to get going. Your coronamids, your mayflies, caddis, damselflies, caddisflies, dragonflies, sort of basically in that order, start to get going and the fish feed freely and fishing's usually pretty good and then you start to get into the summer months and again that what starts to happen is that upper layer of the water column starts to warm due to the sun's rays and you end up with another stratification period where you've got warm low oxygenated water sitting on top of the cooler oxygenated water and the depth of that warm upper layer is governed by how far the sunlight penetrates and right at the limit of the sun's penetration there will be a a short change in water temperature, uh, sorry, a rapid change in water temperature over a short distance, and that's often referred to as the thermocline. And it's a barrier. The fish usually, trout in particular, don't spend much time below or any time below the thermocline because the oxygen levels aren't there, but they'll gather along there. So in the summer months, we often refer this to the summer doldrums because the water temperatures in some cases get so high that it's not really sound practice to fish in those waters. And we're talking water temperatures approaching high 60s and going into the 70s. If you catch a fish in that high temperature water with low oxygenation, because that's the whole relationship, as water temperature increases, its ability to hold oxygen decreases. And those fish become stressed because trout have a narrow band of water temperature that they prefer to be in. I kind of always look for that 50 Fahrenheit to 65 Fahrenheit as a we'll call a happy zone where trout are going to be feeding and metabolizing quickly and feeding again and providing opportunity for us as fly fishers to get at them and have some success. So during those summer months, the trout will often slide deep. They won't be in the shallow areas at all or maybe make the occasional forays in the early morning hours when it's coolest. They still have to eat and the shallows are where the majority of the food lives in lakes. So this takes place. And again, when fall rolls in, days get shorter, air temperatures drop, and that upper layer starts to cool and again becomes the same temperature as the deeper layers and the lake becomes again isothermal, same temperature, and a little bit of wind stimulates, gets that water moving and reoxygenates it. And again, that's important for a lake to go into the winter months in a well-oxygenated state so it'll survive the tougher part of the year for trout in the winter months when there's not a lot going on for them. So it's really important to understand those seasons because, for example, you could be coming to a lake that's two or three days after ice off and you find that concentration of fish right after ice off where the oxygen is and you have some outstanding fishing. And then you come back in there in the middle of August and expect the same results. Fish aren't going to be there because the water temperature's up, the oxygen levels are dropped. They've moved out of that shallow water area and are now moved off the edges of sunken off, the edges of drop-offs, off points into deeper water where the oxygen is because that's what's usually driving them. So it's so important to understand seasonally where you are and what's going on with the lakes. So you're trying to, just like most other fishing, where you're trying to eliminate 10% of the water holds 90% of the fish, this is sort of the still water equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah, that's not this year, but last year, I've got about a two-acre lake down the, the hill for me that I fish, kind of mm -hmm. a private lake on a ranch. And it was the first year that I know of that we had severe winter kill. I went down yep. there and I literally counted 100 fish washed up on the shore, most of them between 14 to 
16 it's, inches. Yeah, it's usually the biggest fish because the, they are the highest consumers of oxygen. And you can also get yeah. a kill situation happening in the summer months as well, where you get, and again, typically a lot of these shallow lakes where the fish just don't have a deep water refuge that holds more oxygen for them. And you've got combinations of high water temperature, low oxygen, you'll get algal blooms that start to happen and algae eventually dies off. And of course, when it dies, it strips the water of oxygen. So if you've got fish living in a low oxygenated state and then another reason for oxygen to get stripped out of the water and it kills them. And there's not a lot you can do about it. In the winter months, a lot of these productive lakes, they'll aerate them. They will put a bubble system in, pump and pump, mm-hmm. circulate water. What that's designed to do is the bubbles don't reoxygenate the water, but they keep the water in circulation and bring that anoxic water up to the surface because it creates a hole in the ice because it's moving and that reoxygenates and sort of gets the lake through winter. So they often do that in some states and provinces on the lakes that are sort of groomed to be trophy lakes uh, to provide that unique experience oh. to get them through winter. But you can't really aerate it. My understanding is not a good idea to aerate during the summer months because you've got that deep water is still pretty anoxic below the thermocline. That's why the trout don't spend some species like lake trout and species like that have adapted and evolved to survive down there. But your rainbow trout, brown trout, cutthroat, those kind of trout, they don't like that kind of stuff. So they don't go spend much time below. So if you were to take that mixing process and do it in the summer months, you're just taking anoxic water and mixing it with low oxygenated water and really not creating a good combination. Yeah. One thing we were told about this lake was that it used to have an outlet at the bottom of the lake that the water would run out and run back into the creek. It's fed constantly by fresh water by a creek. Yep. But I was told that because, and, and at some point that valve got broken or something, so it hasn't been releasing out the bottom for years. Yeah. And uh, I was told that that could be part of the problem too just keeping the lake healthy. It's funny, though, because our best, most productive lakes are generally landlocked, meaning they have no inflow or outflow streams. And what that allows to do, all the nutrients from the surrounding area get pulled into the lake through runoff and rain and things like that, and then stay in the lake and create that nice fertile compost that weeds mm-hmm. like to grow in. And then you get the whole chain of circle of life going. you got the muddy, nice compost. The plants grow well. The All the different invertebrates and fish come in to live in there and provide a great food base for the trout. But there are some lakes, that I fish Sheridan Lake, private lake in Idaho, and it's got an inflow stream coming in, cool, oxygenated water, and of course the fish will gather there. Knowing that if you have cool inflow waters coming in, that fish will be attracted to that. If you have springs, underwater springs, they're going to gravitate to that too. They're going to go wherever that cool, oxygenated water is. So that's why a thermometer to take water temperature, not only at the surface, I've got electronics with it's written right on the screen, but I also have a streamside thermometer on a cord, maybe 30 feet of cord, and I'll plumb the depth sometimes to find depth water temperatures that are conducive to trout being there. Yeah, that was a question. Phil in Kentucky just wrote in and he says, do you check the water temperature at various depths to decide at what depth the trout might be located? That's basically what you just said. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, I'm, if, if somebody doesn't tell me what their water temperature is in their fishing report, you need to go to Lake X and I, how's the fishing, what was the water temperature, and they don't tell me, I'm kind of, oh, wow, you missed a, a key part of it, right? And So you're looking for that what did you say, 50? I like that 50 to 65 Fahrenheit is sort of a, and it's, that's nothing, but each fish on this planet has a particular temperature range, and you can search the web, and there's lots of them there. But generally for trout and char, it's sort of in that temperature range. 
is what I'm looking for. Okay. You know, lake trout and brook trout, they tend to like cooler, oxygenated, more oxygenated water. Brown trout, I believe, are a little more temperature tolerant. So there are subtle variances, but it's a good ballpark temperature range. And of course, the trout in that range, that's when they're functioning at peak efficiency. So they're eating, they're digesting that quickly, which is good because that means they get hungry again, and then we get to go get them again and again. <laughs> So in general, like in your book, you have kind of a diagram looking at the lake, kind of a slice looking in. Yeah, cross section. You've got the littorial, yeah, littorial zone, and then the limnetic zone. So there must be, given with the seasons you just talked about, Mm -hmm. there is that range of temperatures that will, I guess, eventually settle in at each part of the season, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually you're going to start plump. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say there must be a point of where it doesn't, a lot of people think, oh, well, I got to get deep to get big fish, but mm-hmm. there must be a point of kind of no return where it doesn't pay to go deeper because the fish don't Yeah, really there's live not, there. there's a couple things. Yeah, there's super deep below that thermocline. It's not, it's not the greatest water down there. It doesn't get circulated and mixed around as much as, as the other upper layers because even that during the summer months, when the lake is stratified, if you've got any wind, that's going to help circulate or, and reoxygenate the water to some degree as well, right? Just get the water moving and get it diffused. But that thermocline acts like a, you could almost say a peat, like a saran wrap, Brian refers to it when we're talking, that comes across. And organisms like zooplankton can't penetrate through that, and they can actually appear on a sounder as this band right at a set level because they can't get through it. So they kind of stack up in numbers in some circumstances in rich concentrations that they'll stack up in large numbers and they'll actually reflect the sounder pulse off of them. And that's usually on a clear lake, it could be as deep as 40, 50 feet. I'm thinking lakes, Lake Tahoe, which may not be a typical productive trout lake, but very clear, or your shallow or your, your nutrient-rich algae-type lakes with lots of suspended matter. That'll block the sun's energy to some degree, and the thermocline may only start at about 20 feet down. So each mm-hmm. lake, they're all different. That's one yeah. of the challenges is they don't all... I talked about those mixing events. Those, those two mixing events for lakes that get iced on and have a typical winter, but on lakes that don't ice over, there's only one annual mixing event, and that's in the fall, because it's the summer months that create that period of stratification. Okay, okay. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll we'll come right back and uh, dig more into some equipment, some flies, some strategies, and so forth. So, hang tight, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. And once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon, targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley, and bonefish and snook are also ready for your cast. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesleyflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. Again, it's charlielesleyflyfishing.com or 303-430-4634. 
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Phil Rowley about stillwater trout fishing. If you'd like to ask Phil a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that in a text box to send us your question. Phil, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, and I know we chatted about a month ago, and you're all excited about some of your new projects, so would you like to share those with us? Sure. Obviously, the book coming out was a big thing. been working on that for three, three and a half years, so that took a lot of time to get that slug through and get it done. Some days are those kind of things are better than others, but the book itself has got 110,000 words in it. I think the publisher was originally expecting about 80,000, but I kind of blew the word budget right out of the water. So busy with that, and then, of course, with the onset of the pandemic and shutdowns and all the impacts that it had as online learning really took off and you know I with the guiding and during the basically the late winter January through April and early spring as I'm all over speaking and stuff and of course that dries up and no more schools or seminars or anything like that so online learning really took off and that led to the development of the Stillwater Fly Fishing Academy which you mentioned in my intro was a online learning that myself and a friend of mine Jordan Olerick put together because we were both in the same boat and said, hey, why don't we do some of these things online? So we're developing a whole suite of online courses that people can sign up for at certain times of the year and improve their stillwater fly fishing that way, either in live presentations or sort of downloadable courses that you can take at your own pace and leisure. Busy with that. Stillwater app as well, still doing that. Again, the pandemic had a bit of a challenge because Brian and I don't live in the same area, so it's tough for us to get together and film, but we worked out some ways around that to film independently or do some creative editing things and still we have an online store we do together that specifically caters to the unique requirements of stillwater fly fishing we do our own flies we have our signature flies there our books dvds and lots of accessories and things like that are specific to challenges of stillwater fly fishing because brian and i found it was difficult to find them consistently everywhere else so we sort of decided probably over 10 years ago now, to open up a store and do that. So that's really taken off with the onset of the pandemic and sort of online purchases and things like that. So that's, last year at least, that's kept me hopping. Yeah, it sounds like it. I was just looking to see here, I believe, under your bio page on the site, we have the flycraftangling.com. Yeah, that's my personal site. And then there's stillwaterflyfishingstore.com is the dedicated store site, and you can get to that store through my flycraftangling.com website as well. And there's stillwaterflyfishingacademy.com is where you'll find information there as well. There you go. Oh, good. Well, thanks for sharing that. A lot going on, a lot of resources for you folks to explore and enjoy out there on stillwater fly fishing. So check them out. And okay, well, let's get back into it. Sure. I'll start this next question out with a question from Phil McCartney. He really wants to know about that fish you're holding <laughs> in the photo that we have of you. And I don't know, is that a steelhead? No, that is a trout from one of the things pre-pandemic I was uh, doing more and more of was hosted trips down to Lago Strobel, better known as Jurassic Lake. It's sort of the World Series, World Cup, Stanley Cup of stillwater fly fishing down there because the the trout are huge. That's actually right on the shore. You fish from shore down there, but it's Patagonia, and as you probably know, it can get pretty windy down there, but the trout love it when the wind's up because it churns up all kinds of goodies for them to eat. And that's right on the shore. It looked like a river in the background, but it wasn't. It was just blowing hard. <laughs> yeah, what Phil wrote in, he says, how does this 
trout like that built like an NFL lineman? Do they feed on large food items like minnows, crayfish, and other fish? Or how do you catch fish on smaller flies looking like that? What did you catch that one on, by the way? That one was caught on, a, if I remember, was a small leech pattern. Those fish in that particular lake, their primary food source are freshwater shrimp or scuds. Hmm. That's it. Yeah. So they're eating yeah. size 12 and 14 and 16 little candies all the time, if you will. And the other things they feed on down there are snails and zooplankton, which is microscopic stuff, which they just strain. I think that's one of the myths or one of the things that gets people confused in lakes is because a fish is big, it must eat big things. And in some right. environments, they certainly do. If there's bait fish present, they will certainly, particularly brown trout, will turn on those. And obviously that rich in protein and calories helps them gain weight. But some of the lakes that don't have any coarse fish or other species in them, those fish have nothing to eat but invertebrates, and they get super big. My son and I were out last Friday fishing, and he got a fish close to nine pounds on a size 16 chronomet pupa. So those fish, it's so easy for them to eat those food items, and they're rich. In, like Scuds are like the carbohydrate of the underwater world. They're like McDonald's fries. You eat a lot of those, you'll get big. And so it's the same kind of thing there. It's easy to eat. They expend very little energy to eat them. In many ways, it's more efficient to eat that than chase around a bait fish. And all the effort that's taken mm -hmm. to eat that when you can just sort of turn your head a third of an inch to the left and inhale and you got three, right? So it's yeah. just easy eating. So it's a bit of a myth, big fly, big fish in lakes. It, certainly there's, there's yeah. times that it happens, but a lot of times we're fishing. Even down in Argentina, I'm fishing size eight. I'm fishing the same trout flies down there that I'm fishing in my local waters or in waters in North America. Yeah, so the question was going to be, <laughs> it was going to be, <laughs> what do trout eat, right? But yeah. I know what you're going to say. But the other answer is it depends, right? And it depends yeah. on the lake yeah. and it depends on the season. And But is there, I know you're big into coronamids and mm -hmm. focus a lot on that. Is that a primary source for a food for most lakes? Where would you focus most of your attention? Over time experience, my first book I did, Fly Patterns for Still Waters, had some diet charts in it that I had done for that time. That book's over 20 years old. In fact, I think it may be out of print. So if you've got it, it's a collector's item if you view it that way. And and over my experience doing using proper careful use of a throat pump and hanging out your odd cleaning station and things like that, making a pest of yourself, finding out what they feed upon, the majority of the fish I ever had the chance to examine their throat or stomach contents had coronamids in them in some shape or form. Because coronamids are, have a complete life cycle. It's the name of the, the bug, if you will. So they have a larval stage, a pupil stage, and an adult stage. We have an egg stage, but we're not really interested in that. And the trout eat a lot of the larvae and the pupa and occasionally the adults. And these, there's more than, I remember talking to Rick Hafley, he said there's over 2,500 species of coronamids in Western North America alone. So that number, that, the number of coronamids outnumber all the other food sources combined. They're just so hmm. rich and prolific. And they love muddy bottoms to live in. That's their probably, they can live anywhere. Sewage treatment ponds, I'm not advocating to go there, but they can live <laughs> in brackish marshes. They can just try to illustrate where they, they live anywhere they want. But they love those muddy bottoms. And when they establish themselves in there, it's staggering the numbers. So you can imagine when they start to emerge and hatch, they'll come out of the mud and they'll sit and spend time just above the bottom, the pupil stage will. And they gather gases under between the adult inside and the pupil skin, and that takes time. I used to study these in aquariums. I've seen them take three or four days before they're ready to go 
and then they'll slowly start to elevate and wiggle their way up to the surface. Of course, they're totally exposed, they're easy to eat, and the trout eat a lot of them. And the next most popular thing, if they were present, was fresh, was scuds. Again, because they're, they're pretty prolific, and they like to be out in early mornings in low-light conditions, and they expose themselves. Most of the other food sources, of course, trout will certainly eat them if they come across them, are either prey or predator, and they're either hiding in ambush or hiding out of fear not to get eaten. And the only times they really expose themselves in significant numbers is when they're emerging. Like, stillwaters don't have the same number of mayfly species that rivers and streams do. In the West, we have Calabatus is the most predominant mayfly species. Then you'll have, some lakes will have Hexagena, Hexes in them, but they Hexes have very strict requirements for bottom makeup because they're burrowing nymphs. Bit of a, I call it Goldilocks complex because if it's too hard to burrow in, they can't dig holes. If it's too soft, the burrows collapse. So when they find that's just right, they establish themselves in huge numbers and can be a pretty predominant food source there. But all the other ones tend not to expose themselves unless they, you know, happen to make a, a mistake or something like that. So that's why the yeah. coronamids are yeah. such a huge importance, particularly in the West and in productive waters, because right now, the fish in my local lakes, when you do a throat pump on them, that's what they've got in them. That's what that's they're focused what they on. Okay. And you're, right. seeing hatch, you're seeing hatches, like hundreds of thousands of these coming off, right? This is mm. not just 20 or 30. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Questions about equipment. What rods, what weight rods do you usually use? I generally use a six weight. I would say for my still water experiences, four weights through sevens would be a good range. Uh, a four weight would be good. Small fish, light winds. Most fly fishers I know that I fish with are fishing five and six weights. When I was younger, probably tended to fish five weights more. And as you get older, you start to less effort from you and more let the tool do the job and yeah. six weights. We've always got to deal with wind. And I know a lot of anglers hate wind, but wind is actually your friend on a lake. It provides, circulates water. It, as we talked about earlier, it, it uh, masks our presence. It, the rippled surface, it gives the trout that sense of protection and confidence to feed like a riffle would in a stream. So we have to have rods that can deal with that. Seven weights are popular as well in windier conditions. Like when I talked about Argentina, we're fishing seven and eight weights down there because of the wind and of course the size of the fish we're going to encounter. If you fish lock style, which is from a drifting boat, I find there's a lot of repetitive casting because you drift, you cast, you retrieve, you drift, you cast, you retrieve. And so the more casting, just heavier rods. Over in Europe, a seven weight is probably a standard. And in the UK, from what I've seen, is a seven weight is more of a standard still water rod. I'm I'd probably say a six foot, uh, sorry, a six foot, a 10 foot six weight rod because we like long rods and lakes. We have Roger in Cheyenne, Wyoming asks, given a choice of an intermediate sinking fly line or a floating fly line with a, a seven foot sink tip attached, which would you prefer? Oh, I'm a line junkie. I have, <laughs> you know, all of them. Actually, if I was, and this may surprise some people and some people may beg to differ, but if I was stuck to fishing one t line type in a lake, it would be a floating line. Because okay. obviously there's, we don't get the surface activity that river and stream anglers do, but there's still an opportunity there at certain times and on certain lakes. If you go down to, in August, into Montana and fish Hebgen Lake, you've got great calabitas emergences there. So you have the opportunity to cast a rising fish, but that's frankly a rarity most of the lakes i fish the trout feed subsurface but a floating line by varying your leader length 
you can fish what we call, we nickname it the naked technique, long leader nymphing, where we're fishing 15, 18, 25 foot leaders. We can get down 20 feet because we're retrieving the fly so slowly that it'll stay down there and track horizontally. And of course, strike indicators have become very popular in recent years, but yeah. a floating yeah. line would be the my tool of choice because we are already, okay. we're always, our favorite water is shallow water, less than 20 feet deep. That's where the food is. And that's where fish are going to okay. Tim in Oregon has three questions. I'll read them one at a time. They're all about loop knots on flies. Yep. One, how large is too large for a loop? I figure the ones I tie end up being about one-eighth inch, and I'm wondering if that is small enough or somehow affects the overall appearance of the fly. I love loop knots for, I'd say, 95% of what I'm fishing because it's an open loop, if people aren't familiar with that, and allows movement within the fly. So you've got basically an inanimate object in the fly, and when you're moving the fly or stripping it, the open loop allows it to move and suggest life. My target for forming a loop knot is to make it about twice the diameter of the hook eye. That doesn't always happen. <laughs> we have good days and bad days. And I don't think if the only risk to a large loop is if you're fishing a long-tailed fly, like a leech or a streamer, like a baitfish pattern with long marabou, it could foul in the loop. But as for fish seeing the loop, I don't. If, if they see the loop, how come they consistently miss that big hook hanging underneath the fly? Right. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes I think yeah. fish. We give them. I always think Too fish are an credit, optimist. Huh? They're looking for reasons yeah. to eat it, not reasons not to. And so, yeah. you know, that's the target. And some days I make really good loop knots, and I'm amazed with myself. And that's usually when I remember I forgot to put the indicator on, so I've taken it all apart again. But to large loops, I think what Tim is talking about that one eighth inch. That's not too bad. That's okay. a pretty good size loop. Yeah. Okay, his second question is, uh, in a two-fly setup, do you use a loop knot on both flies, just the top one or just the bottom one? Two-fly rigs are legal where I fish in Oregon. Yeah, and they're legal where I am now. I lived in B.C. for 35-plus years, and they weren't. So I now, where I live in Alberta, we can use up to three. I use two 95% of the time, and I always joke I'm not going, going to move back until they change because there's so many benefits to droppers. But in answer short, I use loop knots on both because I tie my my flies on separate droppers. I don't tie off the bend of the hooks. Okay. okay. I don't do that tandem system. I like the system I use. It's in the book. It's called a sliding dropper. And it's based on that there is a stopper in the leader somewhere, either a tippet knot where you're connecting leader to tippet or tippet sections, or a small, we use a lot of small barrel swivels from time to time. And I would take a six to eight inch section of tippet put a perfection loop in one end and then loop that around the leader by passing the other end of that loop's tippet section through the perfection loop and pulling it around so it snugs around the leader and snugs tight. And then that allows that dropper to sort of spin and rotate and tangle less. And we also snug it about two inches above the dropper. So if you get a take and you miss it, if it ate that fly, that take, the tension of that action will slide it, cause it to slide down tied up against that tippet knot or swivel, and that fish ate that fly, and that can give you clues to the fly type or probably more accurately what depth that fly is running at. And so that's what I tie on. So they're independent. Your leader length never changes. You can add and subtract them, and you can easily change flies. The tandem method, tying off the bend, at least that's what I call it, is probably the least tangle prone because where one fly follows, the other tracks in behind it. But changing things up is you got to basically disassemble sometimes if you want to take everything apart. If the fish eats the upper fly, sometimes that lower fly and tippet section can come off the hook. Uh, and I just worry how the fly's behavior is impacted by having a weight basically tied to its back end. I don't know if it moves as, as free as it could if it didn't. 
And when you're fishing vertically, just like euro-nymphing, a fish can come in, and vertically I mean like under an indicator or fishing a sinking line vertically, with that leader's hanging vertically, a fish can come in and try to take that upper fly, and its snout actually touches the leader snout and its lower jaw and can push the fly away or it can feel it and not take the fly, right? So yeah, that's yeah. sort of why I like yeah. those, why I lean towards independent droppers. And I don't know, by the way, folks, Phil is one of our regular panelists on Clubhouse. So if you want to talk to Phil more, join us on Clubhouse. Yeah, we can, many times. we can overtake yeah. the room. Stillwaters, we'll yeah. overtake the world, overtake the room. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's some other good stillwater fly fishers in that room too. Yeah. So, but I don't know if you were on one of the most recent ones we did, but we got to talking about tippet rings. Do you use, use uh, tippet rings? Do you? To yeah, you could do that. I just like them because if you've built up a leader by putting a tippet ring on, you've kind of capped it, and it keeps that the integrity of the leader intact. And you can add and subtract and ebb and flow, sort of down from the tippet ring without affecting your leader above the tippet ring. So it just makes for easy changes and just keeps everything. When I talked about that naked technique, leader length, it's in the floating lines, a subsurface chapter I put in there, is critical to that success because if you don't pay attention to your leader length, when you start chopping and changing flies, you're over time shortening that leader and eventually you don't have enough leader to get down to where the fish are. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen over it. So having a tippet ring in there sort of caps that stops it and keeps your the integrity of your leader in there so i use them a lot right, right yeah tim also asked last question do you use loop knots on dries yep yep i do okay good yep um, i also use clinch knots rick, sometimes i get lazy <laughs> whatever's working okay, yeah rick takahashi wrote in rick takahashi is also shows up in clubhouse as well and is yeah. an excellent fly tire but he's asked do you have any new methods for how you set up your rigs for fishing still waters knots swivels rings etc yeah i certainly we talked about the tippet rings i'll use those throughout all presentations i'll even use swivels as well swivels are similar to a tippet ring and how you clinch knots to integrate them into your leader but they spin and rotate, so they add, and of course they add a little bit of weight. We use those a lot when we're indicator fishing. And the key to being consistently successful on indicators is having level leader between your indicator and your fly or flies. So when you set that indicator for 8 feet or 9 feet or 12 feet, it's going to hang straight down. If you use a standard tapered leader, 9 or a 12 footer, they're primarily designed for turning over dry flies, river and stream fishing. And they have differing thicknesses along the length because half of those leaders are typically butt section. And in a nutshell, thin stuff sinks faster than thick stuff. So if you've got differing thicknesses along the length of your leader, you're going to have a leader that, even though you're set for 10 feet, isn't probably going to sink to 10 feet. It's going to sink off that indicator in a bit of an arc, right? So that's important. We use the setup I use of the Rio indicator leaders. They have about a two-foot butt section on them, and that... I put between the indicator and the fly line that to me has a number of benefits. First of all, it's a little stiffer, so it's going to help turn this over because indicator systems with those thin level leaders, swivels, multiple flies, bead headed flies, it's tangle. And an indicator, it's tangle prone. So it's going to help turn that over for you. It's also because it's thicker when you use a loop to loop connection, it's not going to bite into your expensive fly line and cut it. You could I know anglers that use straight level leaders like 10 feet of 10 pound or 8 pound, but there's a risk they could cut into the coating and damage your leader. And they also use level lead, those level leaders out of fluorocarbon. Well, when you've got your indicator sitting there, your indicator's on the water, the tip of your fly line's there, but that section between, because it's floral, will sink. 
And of course, when you go to set the hook, you've got to pull all that up through the water. And if fish are feeding softly and not moving the indicator very much, it's kind of sliding or pulling half down, that could cause some delay in your ability to set the hook. So that's why I like these indicator leaders. And then I just simply add tippet. They come, they go two feet and then quickly taper down into very, like over an inch. They're into level leader. And then I just add tippet sections, a tip. And there's a whole diagram in the book of this. And I just add a section of tippet to that and then a swivel. And then I like to keep the bottom fly about two feet from the swivel. And I'll put my dropper just above the swivel. So that's sort of when we're doing, people think the indicator fishing is just kind of a simplistic, easy way, put a float on and watch it and wait for it to go down. But it's the most complex leader system that I use. And really good indicator fishermen are really diligent with their leader construction because it's really critical to be consistently successful. I've had clients and students in my boat where one is fishing a level leader and one is fishing a standard tapered leader, fishing the same flies at the same depth. And the level leader student or guest is consistently hooking fish. And the other gentleman or person isn't until we change them up and then they go toe-to-toe, fish-to-fish, right? The leader makes yeah. the difference, right? Wow. It's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. similar to Euro-nymphing in some ways. The leader construction is really critical to success. Yeah, question from Joe in Boise, Idaho. He says, in your new book, you say that you use a seven-and-a-half-foot, I guess seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leader. Type 3, yep. Yeah, is that fluorocarbon or nylon? It's, and you it's want to nylon. What he's talking about? Yeah, okay. it's my basic. I try to keep my leader solutions, and I there's... I'm sure we could spend 14 hours talking about leaders on yeah. Clubhouse one yeah. night because everybody's got a different system and they all work, all right? It's a lot of times it's what makes sense in your mind, what works for you and your particular fishing style, your casting style, it all works. I use the seven and a half foot leader because on my hovers to type threes, I'm probably fishing single fly setup, probably maybe seven and a half to 12 feet, depending on water clarity. A hover line or a clear intermediate, I might be fishing 9 to 12 feet. That type 3 is about 7.5, maybe 9 feet with water clarity. So what I'm doing there is those 7.5 footers are nylon, right? Generally, in fluorocarbon leaders, they're usually only made, it depends on manufacturer, but they're not as wide. They're not, they're usually made in one length, is what I'm trying to say. And so I use that seven and a half footer and then I can add tippet. So I get, again, going to the half of that seven and a half foot leader has a butt section that's going to help turn it over. And then the rest is level. So those flies will more or less track in the same plane as the line. That's what we're trying to do here is um, Mm -hmm. trying to keep the flies swimming or moving in the same plane as the sinking line because we can control the sink rate of that line by knowing how much it sinks in inches per second and just using our watch and some simple math and we can time our flies down and consistently put our flies at a set depth and take fish, right? Because depth in lakes is arguably the most important, I think, aspect of getting, catching fish consistently is getting at the right depth and keeping it there. That's why strike indicator works so well because it controls. Yeah, yeah. Scott Nelson wrote in, he's from Portland, Oregon. He says, for years, leech patterns were weighted near the head of the fly so that they would provide a jigging motion. The jigging motion can be highly effective with numerous fly design, not just leeches, but streamers as well. In recent years, the balanced leech design and method has arisen so that this leech dressing hangs horizontally. I cannot believe that you and your colleague, Brian Chan, and others just came to design this phenomenon out of the blue after so many years of study with Stillwater food forms. Please explain and clarify. (laughs) Many thanks. 
Actually, the balanced leech, the credit goes to Jerry McBride and his colleagues at uh, the Inland Empire Club in Spokane, Washington. And Jerry realized that when, when you're hanging beadhead flies under an indicator, that they hang vertically. And most things that trout feed on in lakes move horizontally. So he set about trying to create a fly that would hang in a more natural manner, horizontally. And he did it by taking a pin and a tungsten bead and lashing it to a standard down-eye hook and playing around with the balance point because that the um, tungsten bead and pin compensates for the bend of the hook and causes the fly to hang horizontally. My contribution to that was introducing jig hooks into it. And that's simply from a, once you finish tying the fly, a 60 or a 90 degree jig hook, it doesn't matter. The hook eye stays above the body of the fly so you can tie the fly on. Because I found when I was tying on down eye hooks, if you get so wound up in tying the fly, you obscured the hook eye in the tying process. You dubbed over it or dubbed it such a way or wrapped the materials in it that it was very hard to tie the thing on. I always joke those are the flies you give away to friends that say you never give them anything. And a wonderful fly that balanced, it was just very difficult to tie it on. So that's where it comes from to trying to imitate that horizontal posture. But what I've learned over the years as well, although that fly was originally designed to hang under an indicator, it's also an excellent cast and retrieve fly because it's a little jig. So when you strip on it, it pulls up, and with that tungsten bead, it plummets nose down. You get this really seductive jigging action. And also, if you fish it over a bottom, it lands on its nose. So hook point up doesn't, not super weedy stuff, but over a rocky bottom, lightly weeds, you can hop and skip that fly over the bottom. And I've done well fishing for smallmouth and largemouth bass using balanced flies and balanced minnows just in that way, the way a bass, a conventional bass angler would use a jig and a creature baiter or some kind of soft plastic presentation, mm-hmm. Ned mm-hmm. rig or something like right. that. Yeah. Great, great. Rick Takahashi again asks, so what's your experience in using UV materials in your fly tying? Does UV materials increase the effectiveness of your flies? What I use are fluorescent materials at certain times, an element of fluorescence. My understanding, the latest science on this is trout in their juvenile stages, when they're really small, can see into the UV range. But as they mature, those cones transition into the the blue and violet range. There's an analogy, Roy G. Biv, that's the light spectrum we see from red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, violet. I think that's about Roy G. Biv, blue, indigo, violet. Yeah, so that's how it sort of transgress, trans, and, and trout see in that same range too. But f- so they they don't see UV. It was first reported, but fluorescence is definitely important. And I use I incorporate that when I'm fishing deeper, when light is an issue, when I want to make flies stand out, murky water, things like that, and just even fluorescent hot spots or fluorescent beads come into play on it as well. So I do use the fluorescence. But I don't look for materials that have that sort of UV properties because, frankly, humans can't see into that range. Yeah, yeah. Let me take a quick break here, Phil, and then we'll come back and we'll start talking about some strategies and tactics here and finish off the night. So uh, hang tight. I'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. 
FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. All right, we're back at it here on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Phil Rowley about stillwater trout fishing. So if you have a question, use that text box on our homepage. Send us a question. We'll see if we can get to it tonight. We do have a lot left. I was going to get into watercraft and stuff, but we just don't have the time. If you can keep this uh, yeah, really short, but, you know, kind of give us your preferred methods. What watercraft do you like using yeah, and why? Yeah, I primarily fish out of a boat. Yeah, pram, and I also is that, is that the yacht I saw you in on the Facebook? Yacht, yes. That's, I have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I do have. I have a few boats I've accumulated. You never seem to get rid of them. I've got a. I primarily fish out of a 14 foot flat bottom boat called a Marlin. It's called very stable because I prefer to fish a lot of times from an anchored position. So they're very stable to sit and stand in or move around in without risk of being tippy. There's no, boats are all about compromise. Watercraft's all about compromise. They do some things well and then they don't do other things well. So a flat bottom pram is not the best in a chop or lumpy water. But I also fish out of pontoon boats. A lot of the outcast products, like I've got a Stealth and a Pack 9000 that I like to, sometimes it's just, I want to fish out of this or that or accessibility issues because my boats are trailered so I don't always have lakes that are trailered and of course dragging an aluminum boat or a drift boat around by hand is hard <laughs> to say the least so then the portability of these inflatable blow-and-go boats work well and even uh, float tubes I don't float tube as much as I used to when I was younger I do like to be what I say about watercraft is I prefer to be up off the water so I can have perspective particularly when fishing floating lines with indicators and without because the Either the indicator or the floating line becomes a strike indicator. You can see signs of a take on there, and if you're looking down on it a little bit, you have a better opportunity to see those as opposed to being more horizontal and being on the same level as it or close to. Yeah. What about fish finders? Love them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's uh, funny. We Obviously, I learned to fish without fish finders, but I've got them now, and and electronics are a key component, not for finding, I call them sounders because fish finding is just one thing they can do, but we use them more for structure, to find drop-offs, to find little sunken depressions, to find weed beds, underwater points, things like that. When you understand how they work in their cone, width of cone in the shallows, they're very narrow cone. Generally, a um, low-frequency cone, It's if you're in 10 feet of water, that cone is mapping 10 feet in diameter. So a fish has to come right underneath the boat and in 10 feet of water they usually don't like swimming under boats and so they usually don't register so i call it the field of dreams theory if you remember that movie if you build it they will come so if you find the right structure they will come so that's what i primarily use it for i only really rely on it for fish finding when i'm exploring deeper waters off drop-offs 15 20 feet into that late spring period yeah. when fish are going yeah. or unsettled weathers move them out into deeper water yeah. You discuss anchoring in your book, right? 
Yep. I think remember that. So, Gordon, I'm going to refer you to his book because you're asking about anchoring, and uh, he goes into it in great depth in his book. Check it out. Yep. I'm still trying to get to a bunch more questions here. Dan in Kent, Washington says, I understand that knowing depth and bottom structure will improve your chances of catching fish, but how do you determine depth and bottom structure on a lake that you've never fished before? He says, I don't have access to a depth sounder or there's no bathymetry information for that lake. Yeah, those that is a little more challenging. You can do some of these things at home with Google Earth. You can look the lake up on Google Earth and kind of drill down on it and have a look and look for light spots that would indicate uh, shallow water areas or sunken islands. When I get to the lake, I always take a note of the surrounding topography because if generally if the land coming into the lake is on a shallow angle, that's going to carry on into the lake and we're as i mentioned earlier we're generally trying to concentrate and i like to if i can to concentrate in water 20 feet deep or less because i can use lots of different presentation techniques and sunlight penetration will stimulate any weed growth there and provide habitat for food that's the costco walmart of the underwater world where they come to feed the grocery stores that's where i'm looking for if you look at a lake and see a steep-sided shoreline like almost vertical that's generally going to be pretty deep there and that's most of the time not much in the way of that shallow shoal or littoral zone area that we talked about earlier as well. That's where mm-hmm. the food is going to be. And you can play around if you've got an anchor. You drop it down and plumb the depths. Or we used to use, we put marked anchor rope. Every three feet or five feet, we put spray paint or a black marker or tape or whatever you want to use to mark the rope and just simply count the number of, if three marks go out and they're five feet apart, you knew you were in 15 feet of water. And you would, when you pulled the anchor up, you paid attention to what it brought up with it right? Whether it's weeds or mud or things like that, or sometimes yeah. it hits rock, yeah. you can feel it go clunk on the bottom. Yeah, interesting. A lot more yeah. trial and error, um, but uh, you can do it. Yeah, Rick in Tennessee and uh, Rick in Colorado both are asking about depths. How do you determine what depth the fish are feeding at? Well, the electronics do help, but usually the majority of the feeding is done within a foot or two of the bottom because that's where food lives and that's where it's safe to feed, particularly with larger fish. Smaller fish are a little more aggressive, adventurous, and will venture up to the surface at times and feed. But to me, there has to be either a big bug like a big caddis sedge coming off or lots of them, and it's maybe humid and the emergence process is delayed and things are getting trapped, and that'll drag fish up to the surface to feed. And there are always those special lakes that the fish just have instinctively adapted to feed at the surface. But most of the time, I talked about that lake. I was fishing with my son last week. There was coronamid adults all over the surface. We were fishing in 14 feet of water within a foot of the bottom, 13 feet down, and that's where the fish were feeding because okay. that's where those bugs are staging, right? That's where food is. So. Generally, that's where we're going. And I think Rick mentioned, is there any depth too deep? Sometimes no. I fish for lake trout with fast sinking lines and really letting them sink and play out down to 70, 80 feet to get down to where, because lake trout are known for going deep. But most of your, probably I fished as deep as 30 feet sometimes, usually anchored up and fishing vertically, fishing coronamids. There's not a lot of food living out in deep water. So leeches, coronamids will live out there, and zooplankton's a food source that suspends in, throughout the water or at certain depths in the water as well. So we'll be a lot of times using indicators to target those uh, and hanging a fly called a blob under there to uh, catch those Daphne or zooplankton feeders. Yeah, I think we did have a question on that somewhere about that, about what you're using for the Daphne as far as flies go. I'm trying to find the question here, but why don't you address that? Yeah, zooplankton or Daphne are microscopic food sources. 
number of different families. Daphnia or water fleas are one of the different kind of things that can be in the zooplankton category. And trout can get on them. They're rich in calories, but they're microscopic. They're the size of a pinhead at times. So obviously we're not tying flies to imitate anything that small. So the general practice is to, they come in different colors. You'll see them sometimes green, a pinkish orange, those kind of colors. So we are fishing a fly, an English fly called a blob that imitates that, the color of them and kind of a cluster of them. And we're fishing them just like you fish a coronament or a balanced leech. We're fishing them under an indicator and suspending them generally out over deeper water or off the edge adjacent to a drop-off 12, 15 feet down and just letting them sit there and maybe slowly retrieving them back to cover water and what the trout eat them and they love them. And there's an attractor quality to them as well because there are another way to deal with those kind of situations is to trigger a reaction out of them by fishing attractor flies. So bright flies fished at pace to sort of trigger an aggressive territorial or curiosity response out of them, not a feeding response. Mm-hmm. How is that blob tied? What's it tied up? It's, it's tied with a material fritz. It's uh, English. It's like a chenille, but it's a lot more translucent. There's different. There's daphnia fritz, jelly fritz, regular fritz, jelly, slush jelly. Oh, there's, it seems every week there's a new version coming out. <laughs> okay. But it's just got a translucent nature to it. I tie them on small scud hooks and tungsten beads to get them down because it's kind of a buoyant material, so you like to drag it down and stay in contact with the flies because there is a risk if those materials being buoyant are an indicator if they're left to to kind of float around on somewhat of a slack leader trout don't feel any resistance the inclination is to swallow them so i like to keep them on a short if i'm fishing them off a dropper which i often do and that tungsten bead it's going to be tight to the leader all the time so as soon as a put, trout puts their mouth on them i can sense it and react to it but that's okay. what it is in simple terms they look like a river and stream angler's egg pattern but we like to yeah, say they're yeah. Daphne or zooplankton flies. <laughs> okay, okay. Sharon from Kamloops wrote in here on the Internet. She says, what do you use more, monofilament or the clear line? Kind of backtracking here on lines. Line or leader and is I'm, that question. Well, she says, do you use more monofilament or the clear line? I wonder if she means uh, mono. Uh, um, uh, yeah, well, clear, uh, clear line would be your clear intermediates. Medium, um, yeah. I do. If Sharon's referring to leader material, I probably use monofilament for the majority of my leaders and then finish it up with fluorocarbon at the end just because in that tapered leader setup we talked about earlier, it's only available in mono. But I always have the last tippet section or tippet sections are fluorocarbon, which is maybe she's referring to the clearness of that less visible to fish. If that didn't answer your question, Sharon, go ahead and clarify and write in again, and we'll yeah. see if we can. Yeah, please. So Jeremy Watkins, San Diego, asks, he says, I've had the most success in still water trolling woolly boogers with a full sinking line from my float tube. When does it make sense for me instead to fish coronamids and other patterns under an indicator, and what's the best setup for this? Well, we've been talking about setups here quite a long, yeah. but what would make you make the change? I'm not, I'll be honest, Roger, I'm not a troller. I don't like to troll. I like okay. to work the fly. And it's, trolling's a great way to cover water, which is always, if you, if you tried picking different areas, a drop-off, a sunken island, a weed bed, places like that, and you're not getting anything, it's always a good idea to cover water. But how I like to cover water is lock style, where I fish from a drifting boat that is controlled, both drift and how it drifts, its speed and how it drifts with an underwater parachute we call a drogue very popular in Europe and particularly in England and in the competition world to do it because that's how you're that's the only way you're allowed to fish. 
So you're still covering water, but you're drifting downwind and casting downwind and retrieving your flies. So you're doing the retrieving, you're doing the moving of the flies, and your flies precede you. Whereas trolling, you precede your flies, right? So in some situations, you can act in shallow water, your fish will give you a wide berth as you paddle around or over them and and then come back around. Trolling still works, but I just like to move the fly. It's just a personal preference. It doesn't mean trolling's bad or anything like that. It's just something I like to do. So we fish indicators a lot because so much of our stillwater fisheries in Western North America are dominated by coronaments emergences. And the indicator just controls two elements people struggle with in lakes, depth of presentation and keeping it there and speed of the retrieve. Because... Okay. The, the indicator allows you to let it sit still, or you can move it very slowly and cover water that way. Yeah, Richard in Devon, UK, writes in here, he says, this is rather long. When I fish chronomids on an indicator, whatever depth I am fishing in, dangling, slip strike, or bung, the majority of fish take the point fly. Whatever the conditions, hatch or no hatch, how often does Phil use additional droppers, and where does he place them? Does he start off with a single point fly and some droppers if fishing is difficult? Uh, so that's his first question. Yeah. I fish droppers whenever I can. As I joked earlier, it was because for many years I couldn't. So once you've allowed to do something, you kind of, it's like having, never having candy as a kid and then you finally discover it as an adult. You can't stop having it. But droppers, he's right. The, the point fly, the one furthest away from the furthest away at the end of the leader, generally gets the most fly because it's fishing the deepest and it's near the bottom. And as I mentioned earlier, that's where the fish tend to feed and hang out. But droppers also allow you to obviously fish two flies at different depth, fish different stages. They can also act as an attractor. So you could use a you know, a blob that we talked about earlier or a woolly bugger or a mobile fly like that fish will see from a distance and come over and have a look at it. They may eat it or they may turn away from it and go down the leader and see that point fly down below. And that fly, if you took that attractor fly off, your catch rate would drop because your system's not as visible to fish from a distance and they kind of miss it. The other benefit of fishing with droppers too is they add weight. Two flies together, two bead heads together adds more weight as opposed to using a split shot. You've kind of got a split shot with a hook on it as well. So I, a lot of times it's the point fly that gets the action and I've had people say, well, maybe we should take that off and I've always... If you ever remember that movie, Bull Durham with Kevin Costner, you never mess with yeah. a streak. Same logic. Yeah. If what you're doing is working, don't change it because you never know what subtle little change, just cutting that drop off. Maybe it doesn't sink the same. Maybe that it had an attraction value, whatever. It's just I keep fishing it. I fish them yeah. um, whenever I can. And there are times fish will take It's a great way as well. Again, referring back to my last trip with my son, they were feeding off the bottom and the point fly was getting them. And then, and it happens with coronamids, they'll feed on those staging pupa, and then as those pupa become inflated and start ascending through the water, they kind of go en masse, lots of them. It's kind of how the cicada phenomenon going right now, right? There's so many emerging that one of them or two of them is going to make it, right? The predators can only eat so many. And so the fish start to rise up in the water a little bit and may not feed a foot or two off the bottom. They might be three or four feet off the bottom as that horde of coronamids emerges up to the surface. And all of a sudden we started getting fish on the upper fly. So that gives you a clue that you can go a whole time there with only the point fly and all of a sudden it Upper fly is getting more interest, and that's maybe a signal that you can shorten up your distance between right. your indicator and fly and, and fish up in the column a little bit more. 
Okay. Yeah, a second question was, if you were to use a recurring timer to force yourself to leave your fly static before you recast, how long would you set that timer for? Of time. <laughs> if I'm fishing under an indicator, or as he, as uh, Richard referred to, as a bung, once you the thing it's kind of different for everybody. But once one of the criticisms of stillwater fishing is it's boring, right? Because we do things so slowly, it's not as dynamic as say river and stream fishing, where there's casting and mending and walking and waiting. A lot of times we're sitting still, we're casting out and letting things sit for a while. Is once you start to get bored and distraction starts to kick in, and for all of us that's a little different. And some of it's due, you know, I probably maybe and some others have higher patience because we've had more, had some success. And we know if we stick it out, good things will happen. But when you're first learning this stuff, it's hard to, because nothing's happening. So you, but the cure for boredom is to move the fly. So if I'm fishing under that indicator, a typical retrieve might be cast it out and let it sit. It could go a couple minutes and nothing happens, so I start my attention starts to wane, I'm getting bored, I'm getting itchy, I'll move the fly. So I might do a slow strip for about a foot and then stop. And what that does is raises the fly up and then flutters it down, and that movement often will attract a fish over. So once you do that, you always want to, as soon as that indicator stops, look at it, because quite often you get a grab right after that. Or I'll just use a slow hand twist or figure eight or hand weave retrieve and just slowly creep that fly line back and basically drag that suspended fly across a distance, right? And quite often in a presentation is sit still for a while, hand twist four or five turns, sit still for a while, one foot strip, sit for a while until you either finish the cast or it gets pulled under, and then hopefully you remember what you were doing the second before that happens so you can duplicate it. Because some days they want it sitting still, other days they want it moving. Okay, okay. John Sanders in Bellingham, Washington. What is your strategy when you fish a lake that you are very familiar with and know there are lots of fish, but some days it seems completely vacant of any fish life? I just experienced this where I never even marked a fish on my Helix 7 sounder. Do all the fish in the lake just go lay on the bottom sometimes? It's usually if I, because I like to anchor fish, I like to hit my favorite spots include drop-offs, weed beds, edges of weeds, points, sunken humps. If those don't pay off, I start to move in that lock style and cover water because there are days that fish just don't eat. Weather systems, things like that come in and, and upset them and they just don't put the feed or they've just had a heavy feed of something and they just, until they digest it, they're not feeding again and, and probably for reasons you and I will never know why they don't eat. And they do, they will sit on the, become inactive and not move very much or go stage off in deeper water or when they get into that main basin, they just cruise around and they're difficult to find. So I move around, I'll lock style and cover water to find them. And some days that works and other days, I still have days that I don't have very good days out there. I get skunked or I catch one fish and I can't tell you why I caught that fish. I just, as they say, a blind pig yeah. finds an acorn every once in a while, right? So some days are good, yeah. and some days are bad, and I've got favorites that I go to. They're just every once in a while they rear up and bite me. Yeah, my uh, cousin was just up fishing at the North Platte up in Wyoming, Gray Reef, and he was sending me back these great pictures the day, and I said, oh, fishing looks great. And he said, oh, it's awesome. And then the next day I said, well, how was your second day? And he says, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> same river, same guides. I mean, they know where the fish are, but nothing. So totally on and then totally off. So it happens yeah. everywhere I get. Yeah. yeah. Um, They're such an instinctive creature. I always joke if you, if one was on, when back when Oprah Winfrey had her show, if she was to interview a trout, why it did what it did half the time, sometimes I might go, I don't know, I just do it. 
myself. Don't feel <laughs> like it today. And I don't know. I'm going to pose Phil's question here about working a, a bank because a lot of people will fish still waters like this. He says, suppose I'm about to fish from a float tube, unfamiliar lake that is known to have large rainbow trout. I'm geared up and on the water at dawn. In late May, about 50 feet from shore, the air is still, and I decide to work a muddler mineral cast into two feet of water near the shore. What should I do if after 20 minutes of working the shoreline, I'm skunked? And I have not had the foresight to ask you this question. I'll change up. Generally, shallow water fishing is close to the bank is good, as I said, seasonally early spring, right after ice off, and late fall, because fish will go in there to feed because there's lots of food in there. And on a daily basis, earlier in the day and late in the day when there's not direct sunlight on the water. And if there's windy days, they'll fish, they'll feed shallow. I mentioned going back to Jurassic Lake, there were days that were flat calm, but that lake's very clear and it was some of the most challenging fishing because those big fish were reluctant to come into the shallows because they were they're more visible, they feel more exposed, I guess. And when the wind raged and blew, that churned up food and, you know, masked their presence because the surface chop, they could hide under it, again, like trout do in a riffle on a stream. If that's the case, then if they're, I always joke, if they're not shallow, then maybe they're deeper. So if once the sunlight gets on the water, then I might start sliding out and fishing the outside edges of weed beds, and those drop-off areas. And sometimes you can see a drop-off, literally looking down with polarized glasses, or you can see a color change. The bottom's lighter when it gets hit by the sun, and then all of a sudden there's this sort of light line where the water is dark and because it's no longer striking the bottom anymore. And that's a great place to prospect as well, because I think they like to sit in that sort of twilight condition just on the deep side and can make little forays into that lit area and and grab a morsel or a tasty tidbit or something like that. Eventually, if they're not shallow, then I start moving around. And I usually, 15, 20 minutes, I'll work a spot and then move. And I don't make an exponential move. It might be two or three cast lengths along and then try that. And just try working deep, working shallow, working until you stumble or find a, a system that seems to be working. Yeah. Bruce uh, Dorn in Hat Creek, California, wrote, I fish small wild trout ponds of 5 to 10 acres of crystal clear cold water. They are loaded with trout, but many times there are no working fish, and fishing is often spotty. What is the strategy to get them to take my offerings when no food appears to be present, and what should my offerings include? Yeah, and if it's crystal clear water, no wind, arguably the toughest still water conditions you're going to face because they seem to see everything and aware of everything and are very wary because they don't hide very well. When you think about New Zealand spring creeks and scenarios like that, the trout are very tough to take. Any lake, I always do a little survey of food sources by aquarium net around the shoreline and turning over rocks and logs to get a measure of what food sources are in a lake, their sizes, their colors, how they move, those kind of things. And I like to fish imitative, try and represent a food source and do it that way. And if that's not working, then I start fishing the attractor presentations, those blobs and boobies and flies like that, that are designed more to trigger a reaction out of a fish than a feeding response. Okay. Well, we're down to it. I've got one more question for you, and I'm pretty sure you can't answer this one. <laughs> okay. It's from Ron in uh, Washington. He says, what's your best guess oh, as to God. when the Canadian-U.S. border will be open for us uh, Yanks itching to get back up to Canada? Yeah, and I'm itching to go back, and I love to go down and fish the West Yellowstone area every year, the lakes around there, and you know, I've got a lot yeah. of great friends in the States down your way, Roger, that I like to go see and fish. I still want to fish Colorado yeah. some more, and I don't honestly know. Our vaccinations are increasing every day, and there's... 
don't quote me on this, but my gut says there's a lot of marketability for a July, early July opening because of your July 4th and our July 1st holidays around that to celebrate yeah. all this kind of stuff. And I yeah. think my gut says our two countries have been talking to work out some kind of plan, provided certain things happen. Vaccination rates are up and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. We're going through a bit of a third wave here right now that's had some a bit of a spike, but we're, we seem to be on the downside as the vaccinations get going again. And when more people break the chain, if you will. Yeah. My fingers are crossed yeah. for that time frame, I'm hopeful, because both our yeah. countries need it for our economies oh, yeah. and sense of mind and sense of <laughs> well-being. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. That's for yeah. sure. Well, stick with me here, Phil, yeah, sure. and we're going to finish up here, but I'm, we're going to be giving away your book, and I want you to help me with that. So hang sure. tight here. We've got a few more things to cover, and then we'll do just that. We're also going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So stick with us, and like I said, we'll be giving away Phil's latest book, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, so courtesy of Lions Press. So we'll be doing that in just a moment. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. Again, that's fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017, 616-855-4017. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. And now it's time to give away our prizes. And the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on some of these great prizes that we have. And the let me fire this up. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you information on how to receive your prize. Fire up the database here. The first thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.com.org. Sorry, flyfishersinternational.org. So if you don't win tonight, go there and join. It's a great organization to support. Well, let me hit the database here. Okay, it looks like the winner for that, the one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, is Jim McCall in Kansas. Jim McCall in Kansas. So congratulations, Jim. I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership. And uh, the second thing we're giving away is a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is George Hall in California, George Hall in California. So congratulations, George, on winning that subscription as well. So now let's give away Phil's book. And i got to clear my cue here, Phil. Oh, yeah, Sharon was talking about leaders. What do you use more mono? Yeah, I guess some mono or, or fluorocarbon. I think you answered that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cleared my cue here. So, question, two-part question tonight. I'm going to make this more difficult because this is a really nice book. <laughs> so, you've got to earn it. Yeah, you've got to earn it. Two things. Phil mentioned the 
what he thought was the optimal temperature range that you want to be fishing in, from what to what were those temperatures in Fahrenheit, and what was Phil's contribution to the balanced leech or the balanced fly design. There you go. All right, well, let's see if we can get a winner here. Play the and, Jeopardy music. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it takes a little, uh, uh, there's a pause, a little delay before they hear us, hear me uh, posing the question, and then some of them type like they tie flies on hook later, and which isn't too fast. <laughs> some days I fall into that but, category. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, here, I think we got it right from the first one in. The answer is 50 to 65 and yep. a jig hook. That's, That's it. Right. That's yeah, right. so Jeff Picklesheimer in Twin Falls, Idaho. You're oh, a winner, excellent. buddy. And yeah, and uh, we get the second one that was right, too. So people were listening. My goodness. That's good. That's good. That's Jeff. The way you do this is uh, you could use the same form you just filled out and send us your address. I have your name. I've got your email address. I just need your shipping address to get Alliance Press to ship you out a copy of Phil's book. So I'm, I know you'll enjoy it. You're going to love it. So um, lots to learn there. Yeah, congrats. And, and hope you catch a lot of fish after reading Phil's book. Well, Phil, I, I really appreciate you being on with us again for the third time, which is great. And thanks for being out on Clubhouse with us, too. I hope people get the itch and come and join us there because we sure have lots of fun there. Uh, but yep. thank you so much for spending your time with me tonight and uh, sharing all your knowledge. I, I do appreciate it. Thanks, Roger. And uh, sorry some of those answers were long, but I uh, just wanted to make sure they're thorough. Cause <laughs> they're not always a black and white or uh, oh, yeah. three answers, right? There's a lot of complexities right. or scenario. Well, in this scenario, then this scenario. So anyway, well, that's, no, it's uh, great being on here. Yeah, well, that's why I took you, what, would you say 120,000 words or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I didn't, you couldn't write a sentence <laughs> and leave it hanging. You said, well, I just wrote that, so I'd better explain what I just meant and clarify that. Yeah. yeah. That's what so I tried if you to want do. more, yeah, you want more of Phil, check out the other podcast we did on Ask About Fly Fishing. Check out his book and join us on Clubhouse. and Yep, all that stuff. Yep, download the app. There's, there's so much out there to enjoy. All right, Phil, thanks. I hope to see you tomorrow. Are you going to be around tomorrow? I think I might come in. Yeah, I missed the last couple, but okay. uh, I don't have anything yeah. planned for tomorrow night, so uh, I'm going to try and yeah. uh, come in. Hopefully we'll have some still water questions. Yeah, yeah. Join us on uh, Clubhouse tomorrow, everybody. And uh, hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. There in the archive, you'll find over 300 and, I don't know, 20, 30 shows I've done. Just search by keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, still waters, those kinds of things. And you'll find all kinds of podcasts that we've done in the past and just a wealth of information. So check it out. Our next broadcast will be on June 2nd. 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'm going to interview Jen Ripple. And our topic for the show will be Done, the Making of a Magazine. Jen is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the international fly fishing lifestyle magazine, Done Magazine. In addition to her work at Done, she writes for Fly Fishing Women's Buyer's Guide for Outside Magazine and the Women's Best of, the Women's Best of column for Gray Sporting Journal, among others. So join us and learn why and how and how Dunn was built and where it stands today and where it's going tomorrow. It should be a great show. 
We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amara Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.